Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. Consider checking it out at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Dr. John Wade. He's a systems engineer who's worked in industry and academia. Currently, he's in the latter. Dr. Wade is also an expert in ethical sustainability. I wanted to speak with him specifically because I have no clue what ethical sustainability is. (laughs) I also want to learn more about his journey in systems engineering and the moment he realized that public speaking could be of use to him. Welcome to Teach the Geek interviews, Dr. Wade. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. From the bit of research I did on you, I saw that you got a degree in electrical engineering and computer science. Where did that interest come from? Well, I'm one of those strange people that always knew what they wanted to do. So I think it was probably when I was about five years old, you know, I was interested in in electrical things. They were kind of like magic to me. And so I was one of those people that would tear everything apart and sometimes be able to put it back together and it would still work. So it was just an interest that that I've always had. And I just sort of followed it, you know, through my professional career. I saw you didn't just stop, start with a stop with a bachelor's. You got a master's and a PhD too. You went for the whole enchilada. What was the, the motivation to get all the degrees? Uh, I couldn't quit, you know. <laughs> um, I guess, uh, you know, this program is for geeks. And so I raised my hand. I'm a geek. Um, I just really enjoyed learning this stuff. So, you know, the fact was I was able to get a fellowship. So I didn't have to pay for the graduate education. Um, which enabled me to sort of go on. Uh, and I was just able to continue to learn uh, more about the things that I was interested in. So at the time, I was interested in semiconductor physics. So that's kind of where I went. Um, and then in my research, I was working on systems. So it's kind of going in two different directions. One side, academically, was getting to the smaller and the smaller. And then, you know, in terms of my engineering side, it was going to the, sort of the larger and the larger. But um, it wasn't something that you do for for economic sense because you know it's a lot of years with you're not making any money. But intellectually, it was really joyful for me. All right, so you get three degrees, and now it's time to get a job. You mentioned that you did systems engineering type of work in in graduate school. I only learned about systems engineering maybe a couple of years ago. I'd never even heard of the of the field before. So, if you were to describe what systems engineering is, how would you describe it? So I would describe it as whatever it takes to make a system successful. Uh, And by successful, I mean um, successful in respect that it it satisfies people's needs, that it that it creates value, um, that it satisfies, you know, all the all the different stakeholders that are affected by the system. And I have to tell you that I didn't know what systems engineering was and didn't even know had never put those words together when I was doing this work. And it really wasn't until later in my career when I moved back into academia that I started thinking about systems systems engineering as a, as a discipline. Um, it had been something I had done, but it wasn't something that I had naturally studied. Okay, I got you. So when you finished your, your PhD and it was time to find, you know, go out there and start making that money, did you go out there to be a systems engineer or is it something that you, you came to at some point? 
So I went out, I wanted to build the most complicated things, most complex things that one could build, which at that time was supercomputers. So I went in, you know, I, I wanted to develop supercomputers and there was a company just down the street and some people that I knew there, a company called Thinking Machines, a wonderful company. Um, our motto was we wanted to build a computer that would be proud of us. Um, never, never quite got there, but we, we built some amazing machines. And, you know, it was about systems, but I didn't think of it from a, you know, an academic perspective. The, the challenge was how are we gonna build a machine like this that's gonna do all these amazing things with the amount of people that we have, the amount of time that we have, and the amount of money that we have. Um, and so it's not only this, the machine that you're building that you have to think about, but you have to think about how are you actually going to build the, those machines. And so it's sort of both sides of the problem. And I think that's sort of where the systems engineering comes in. It isn't just looking at the technical aspect of the thing you're trying to build, but it's also looking at how you're going to do it with the people, the organization, and so on that you that you actually have, and what is this? What is the machine actually going to do? So those are open questions. You're not going to find an equation for those sorts of things, and those are the kinds of things I think that people who are working systems, um, systems engineers, they actually like those kinds of problems. Gotcha. You know, for the, most of the people that I know that get PhDs, Dr. Wade, they end up well. At least the goal from getting the PhD was to work in academia as a professor. But it sounds like you went and, and, and actually got a job at a company, at least initially. Was it ever uh, the plan to go back to, to academia? No, it was never the plan. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so I, I worked in uh, an industry uh, developing computer systems, um, first at uh, Thinking Machines, then a company called Sun Microsystems. Um, I did a little startup in portable power generation uh, for a couple of years and did some simulations and actually showed that it wasn't going to achieve what we wanted it to achieve. It was, uh, you know, unlike Volkswagen where they programmed their, uh, their engines to be either clean, you know, um, or efficient, we, we didn't want to go that way. And so we, we sort of closed that down. And then I spent a few years um, as an executive vice president at what was then the world's largest a slot machine and casino management company, which was a, a bit of a different gig. Uh, and after some time of that, I decided, you know, that, you know, making the world have better casinos wasn't sort of my life calling. Um, and so that brought me back to academia. I wanted to make a difference and really feel that most of the challenging problems that we have are systems problems. They're not going to be solved by technology or certainly not by technology alone. And we don't really have enough people who understand systems. Um, so I thought education would be the best place for me to go. And so I went to a place called Stevens Institute in Hoboken, New Jersey, and became a professor of systems engineering. And uh, eventually I was the associate dean of research. I was the department chair in systems and software engineering, and then chief technology officer in the systems engineering research center. So. That was, that was the, the, what brought me back to academia was really to, to make a difference. So it wasn't you know, to rise to power or to make money or those sorts of things, but really apply my, my expertise in areas that could have the most impact. Another thing that at least for, for people that get PhDs in the STEM fields, I, I get the sense that once you get that degree, you kind of, if you, especially if you're going into industry, you kind of get pigeonholed into certain roles. So for instance, you know, you get a degree, a PhD in engineering, they're going to put you in, in product development or R&D at a company. Is, it, is that something that you experience? And, and what, 
but even and, and even if you did, you were able to find your way into other things. I mean, you mentioned you you worked in for a company that that's related to casinos. How were you able to, I guess, avoid that pigeonholing? So I, I, I guess I was pigeonholed in the sense that all the positions I had were technical positions. So I was, you know, always in the engineering organization. So I, I didn't, I didn't go into the other organizations, and frankly, didn't really want to. You know, I'm, I'm interested in engineering. I'm interested in creating things, building new things. I mean, to me, that's that's what is exciting. So although I wasn't pigeonholed with respect to being purely technical. You know, I certainly didn't stray far afield from, you know, sort of my, my technical roots. Um, so, yeah, I, I really think it's, you know, do you want to go into the management track or do you want to stay on sort of the technical track? And most of the places I went to, you know, sort of started out with startups and Silicon Valley type of companies. The technical people are on both sides of the tracks, you know, in those, those types of companies. They're not traditional companies. They're very quick moving types of companies. And I think having a PhD in those kinds of companies is, is not gonna cause you to be pigeonholed unless you wanna be pigeonholed. I mean, there are people who are really quite happy being in their lab working alone, thank you. And, and that's where they'll end up. But I think that if you're interested in doing more and getting more involved in, you know, on the, on the managerial side, there are opportunities for that. And you'll quite often find that in technical companies that there are PhDs who have pretty high uh, ranking positions. Generally, they're not the C the CEO, but sometimes, certainly, sometimes they are. Yeah, and you know, I think another another thing when you were when you were talking, Doctor Ray, I thought about is your your varied history and how and how often it can, it might be difficult to move from industry to industry. I mean, I, I used to work with a number of project managers, and they would say that you could be a project manager for any industry, but then you could go to and ask actually ask somebody who works in the company, and they'd say. Well, we actually want a project manager that has experience with our within our particular industry. So they they don't want someone that, for instance, if you're working at a medical device company, they want someone with medical device experience as opposed to a project manager with construction experience. How are you able to navigate just moving within industries? That's a really good question. And some industries are more open and other industries are more closed. You know, so there are industries where if you haven't been there for 20 years you're simply not gonna be able to get those positions. I mean, they're, they're not going to allow it. I was fortunate in the sense that what I worked on tended to be you know, uh, elect electrical engineering and computer science types of things. And if you think about it today, you know, what things don't have computers in them? You know, what things don't have software? What things, I mean, uh, and AI and machine learning are becoming ubiquitous as well. And so if you're working in one of those spaces, you can, you can go just about anywhere anywhere you want because you know almost every system we have are those kinds of systems. And so with that kind of a background, I was able to sort of move pretty easily you know from from one industry you know to the next. Um, I think that if you were, for example, somebody who is a, a, a uh, mechanical engineer who had only spent time developing inkjet technology or, or, uh, or you know, airplane wings or things like that, it would be a much more difficult move. But I think if you are in electrical engineering, computer science, you know, software, um, AI, machine learning, data sciences, and those sorts of things, I think you can move pretty fluidly from place to place. Gotcha. You know, I mentioned in the intro, Dr. Wade, that you have an interest in ethical sustainability. And I also mentioned that I have no clue what it means. So now I'm, I'm interested to, to hear from you. What is ethical sustainability? 
So it's another great question. You know, when we talk about sustainability, people tend to think about the environment. But there's really been, you know, sort of three accepted pillars of sustainability, um, environmental sustainability, um, social sustainability, and economic sustainability. You know, if it's not economically sustainable, the enterprise is going to fail and, and go out of business, and that's going to be the end of it. So people tend to, to, you know, companies, any organization tends to think about the economic sustainability. What they don't think about necessarily is a social sustainability. So, for example, you know, if you are uh, creating new jobs in one area, but you're eliminating jobs in another area, what happens if you go to scale? What's going to happen? What's going to be the societal impact? You know, with 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 those types of things. You know, there's a lot of um, work that's been done, or at least a lot of awareness uh, with respect to ethics and, and artificial intelligence. How AI can basically carry biases with it. You know, that that can really be um, uh, prejudicial. That that can cause lots of problems. And so, engineers increasingly really need to think about the ethical implications. You know, of, of what they do from from that perspective. And then there's the environmental impact. And you know, we we will say, well, here's an electric car and it has, it's, it's zero emissions, you know, but you had to make the car, you know, and there was definitely emissions that were created when you're, when you're making the car. So, you know, how do you trade between these things? And I think that's where the sort of the ethics comes in, in terms of how you make the trades between each of those. And there's a, there's a big movement now um, in, you know, environmental, social, and sort of governance, ESG, which companies are being looked at and you need to have good ratings if you want people to invest in you. And I think that's the place where we can have the largest impact that if we can create a means by which you can objectively rank and understand what companies are doing, what their impact is, that's gonna help investors understand where to put their money. And that in the capitalist society, I think is the best way to, to change behavior. Um, in the eighties, you know, there was this, um, pollution inventory that came out. They didn't change any rules, but the pollution inventory came out and companies that polluted a lot quickly changed their ways just because it didn't look good. And I think that we can do the same sort of thing here where we don't have to pass new laws, but if we can make these, make these, these implications public um, and we can do it in a way that's, that's fairly objective, I think that we can, we can change people's behaviors. But I think we can also make information available so that everybody can make decisions, I think, that are going to be you know, more ethical and, and, and balance you know, um, the social, the environmental, and the economic you know, impact of what they do. So for example, I have an old car. Um, it's a 2004 Volvo XC90. It's a great vehicle, still works great. It's a terrible gas guzzler. <laughs> you know, so what should I do? Um, I don't drive very much. Um, I could sell it, but I might sell it to somebody who drives in a lot, and that's going to have a big impact on the environment. I could junk it, but then I have to buy a new car, and a new car is going to have an impact on the environment. You know, or I could just keep it and keep my miles down as, as low as possible. And I don't really have a good sense of how to make those kinds of trades, but it would be great if, there, if I had an assistant that could sort of you know, give me those sorts of trades so I could, I, I could kind of make those, those types of decisions. And we make those kinds of decisions all the time and we do it with very imperfect information. So what I'd like to do is, is to create the means by which engineers can have this kind of assistance through the design process, you know, when they're designing systems so that 
individuals can make those sorts of decisions you know, with respect to their consumption and investors can make those decisions with respect to where their money's gonna go, which can influence you know, the, the, the motion and the actions of, of corporations. So that's, that's what I mean sort of by ethical sustainability. Um, and it's really been uh, a joy to, to teach people about it. We're creating a new program at UCSD. Um, it's a specialization in cyber physical social systems. So we really care about social systems because you know, uh, eventually that's where we wanna have impact. We're not there to create technology, but we're there to have impact in people's lives in our society. And so ethical sustainability is built into that into this program. And we're going to create the tools and the methods and the processes and such so that people can make ethical decisions and trades throughout the design process. You know, when you were talking, Dr. Wade, the example you gave about your car kind of made me chuckle because as you mentioned, you have those three choices. You can you can keep the car and try to keep the miles low. You can junk it or you can buy a new car. And I just, I just made me think that there are people out there that, are, that feel very strongly for each of those, each of those, uh, each of those options, and if you don't, <laughs> and and if you don't pick one, the, the option they feel so strongly about, they'll try to cancel you on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's true, you know. And so, if you can get to the objective fact, then you may disagree, but at least you agree on the facts. And I think that's a real challenge that we have: is our society is bifurcating, and we have separate realities. Um, and so I think we've got a long way to go to get to the place where we're sort of back on the same page, at least with respect to what is reality. Yeah, no, no question. So based on the, the career that you've had, I mean, you were able to describe ethical sustainability really well. So I suspect that you're able to do it not just on a podcast, but in other places too. So at some point you saw the benefit of being able to, com to communicate well to others. When was that point when you saw that if I became a better communicator, this could be of use to me? Well, I think the first time that I had to communicate um, was when I was an undergraduate and I had an internship and I had to communicate my research results to a group of, of engineers. Uh, and so it was very technical. And I still remember the presentation, you know, and it was with slides in those days where you had transparencies and you, you, you had to print those out and put them on, you know, and project like that and everything. And I remember going through this presentation and afterwards, you know, you know, they said, you know, nice job and everything. And one of my friends said, you know, you say the word basically or essentially before every sentence. <laughs> and I said, well, basically, you know, that's what, you know, and I think it was this notion that, you know, You've, you can't just summarize information. You've got to tell a little bit more of a story, you know? And, you know, there's, there's different venues. I'd say my next big presentation was um, to sponsors when I was doing my research, but, you know, doing a, do a doctoral defense um, is a big presentation, you know, that you have to give. And it's one where, you, it's really one where you, you're almost an attorney where you've got to present your facts and you've got to have, you know, really, well sort of uh, structure to those facts so that you can withstand, you know, the, the different attacks and stuff. I think really where it started to make a difference uh, for me was, you know, after I graduated and I started taking on ever greater roles of responsibility, you know, in the, in the technical field. So as a manager, you know, you might have a group of 
10 or 20 people that you're, you're talking to. And as a director, it might be 50 to 75 to 100. And then as a vice president, you know, you've got over 1,000 people that you might be responsible for. And you've got to sort of you know, be able to present and motivate people in those groups. So it, it changes from being informational, which is, you know, this is what we're doing to understand it, to motivating people, you know, to, to change their behavior. And as you sort of rise the ranks in management, you're no longer directly connected to people, but you're indirectly connected to people. So you really don't have, you know, direct, uh, direct control. So it becomes very much, much more influential. So how do you influence people? And, you know, the, the things that I've learned, you know, simple things are, um, what, what, if it's an influential type of a presentation, what are you trying to get people to do, you know? Um, and who is your audience? Those are sort of critical. Uh, but I sort of break it into three areas. There's sort of the ethos side of things, which is credibility. And, you, and I feel like you have to establish credit, credibility, you know, at the, at the very beginning of, of every presentation. And you can do that in a number of different ways. You know, it could be your expertise. It could be your background. But generally, people want to know that you understand them, you know, that you have some connection with them. And, and you may create that, you know, uh, credibility with a story or something up front that just makes you more human and somebody that people can, can relate to. Um, there's the, the logo side of things, which is sort of the logical side. Engineers tend not to have a big problem with this, but they do have a problem with explaining things in ways that people can understand. You know, throwing up a, a page of equations, <laughs> you may be provably correct, but nobody's gonna understand you. you know, nobody might even believe you. Um, and so you're not gonna go very far, you know, very far that way. And then there's the, the, the pathos, you know, the emotional side of things. You know, and I've been told that, you know, you really have to establish your credibility. You've got to have a logical argument and you need to have some sort of an emotional close if you want to persuade people. And the fact is they'll probably only remember the emotional clothes. <laughs> and they may not even remember the words that you use. They'll just remember the feeling that they had you know, when, they, when they got to that place. And so I think that storytelling, understanding your audience, understand what you're trying to say, understand your audience and having a story together that sort of reinforces each of those three areas. Those are the most important things I think it, it, with respect to um, giving presentations where you're trying to influence people. You Sometimes it's, excuse me? Oh, please go ahead. Sometimes you're just trying to commu communicate information, you know, and so you're just communicating information and that's a pretty flat presentation. But if you want to influence, I think you have to use each of those three elements. <laughs> you know, Dr. Wade, when you were talking about <laughs> how people remember how you made them feel in the, in the presentation as opposed to what you said, I there was a previous guest who said that as well, and and I remember thinking to myself, so I, I put all this time and effort into the presentation, and all you remember is how you feel. Well, damn it, I have a call to action. I need you all to do something too. <laughs> but you you remember feelings? No, I was doing. Do you remember the doing? <laughs> it's yeah. true. You know, the thing is that if, you, if you've got them to feel that way, it's going to be much easier when you do the next presentation or the next message comes out or the next whatever it is, be it an email or whatever else, people will resonate and pick up on that. And if it's a feeling, they may not even know why they're for it, but they're for it. And, you know, you can obviously use these skills for good or for bad. You know, it's, it's, it's a neutral median. Um, uh, 
but hopefully people who are watching this podcast are, are doing it for the right thing for the right reasons yeah and if not at least keep it to yourself <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to presentations at least before you give them do you ever get nervous and if so how do you deal with your nerves you know it's funny I think I'm always a little bit nervous but you know I, I used to run cross country and track and those sorts of things and I would get nervous before a race and there was good nervous and there was bad nervous you know good nervous I think of is, is great because I'm keyed up you know, I'm ready to go. If I'm too flat, if I have no nerves whatsoever, that's concerning to me because I may not, I may not be present enough. I may not be putting my, enough into it. Um, uh, so that's an issue. Some people have really serious nerves where, I mean, I've heard that people, more people um, fear public speaking than fear death. You know, <laughs> I guess death is inevitable and public speaking isn't. But uh, for me, it's just thinking about the people I'm talking to in the story and the desired outcome. You know, I, it used to be, oh no, I got to give another presentation. This is horrible, you know, and you start spending all this time fighting yourself. And for me, it got to a place where, oh, this is an opportunity for me to get the message out. And the more opportunities I have to get my message out, the better. Um, but I think that's an individual road and everybody's going to approach it, you know, fairly, fairly differently. Um, I remember I, I went skydiving when I was in my 20s. I was in graduate school. And for me, signing up for the, the, the dive was the scariest thing. Um, and once I was on the plane, and these are back in the days where you, you went by yourself. It was a static line. So you just jumped alone. When I was on the plane, I didn't have any problem jumping because I'd already gone through the whole thing in my mind. And so I'd already taken care of that when I signed up for the course. So I think if you, if you pre-visualize it, you know, and you sort of go through that, the anxieties will be early. And then as you get into it, you're going to sort of go through what, what you've constructed in your head. Yeah. You know what? I went skydiving in my 20s, too. So we have that in common. And I also jumped out the plane solo. It didn't, it didn't end up so good, though, Dr. Wade. Oh, <laughs> uh, no? No. I got all kinds of training beforehand. I thought I was good, good to go. And then I finally jumped out the plane. All that all that knowledge and the, the training just went out the, complete, out the window. I was just fall, falling down to the, to, the, to the earth. Luckily, there was a trainer who jumped out right after me. Probably saw that I didn't pull the cord when I was supposed to. So they pull up right beside me while I'm in the air and pull my cord for me. And I ended up landing somewhere like at least a mile away from where I was supposed to land. So they actually, people had to come find me. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was the first and last time I ever went skydiving. I'll just, I'll stick to the ground. If I'm in the air, I'm in a plane. And if I'm in the plane, I'm supposed to stay in the plane. <laughs> this, yeah, this. It's, a per it's a perfectly good airplane, right? There's no reason to leave it. No doubt. <laughs> This has been really great talking to you, Dr. Wade. Thank you for taking time to, to be a guest. How can people get in touch with you? Um, they can reach me at uh, my email address, which is jpwade at ucsd.edu. So jpwade at ucsd.edu. Excellent. Well, everybody, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. Consider checking it out at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thank you, Dr. Wade. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure.
Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach to Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Or on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com. Until next time.